Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. So today we are continuing our series on the book of Colossians. We started last week, and, um, and if, you didn't, if you didn't hear it, if you weren't here, I would love for you to go back and get caught up, get connected. We did a, a longer introduction last week than we'll do this week. I'm not going to walk through all the stuff I did last week, but uh, the context is important, so if you missed it, go back and listen to it or watch it on our website and get caught up. Um, but, but what we see in the book of Colossians is um, there was a lot of things going on that was pulling at their faith. There were a lot of demands. Uh, culture was saying um, it's, it's good to have multiple gods, and why would you just have one? And, and really, the culture we live in today says, hey, there is no, not one God, there's many gods, and they're all equally valid. And, and what we see in the Colossian church is there is the same kind of feel. Um, and Paul is, is writing to the Colossian church to let them know, hey, this is, this is wrong, it's false, there is one God, and he is supreme over all of the gods, that Jesus is preeminent. And this is kind of the theme we see woven throughout the book of Colossians. And this is where we'll spend a lot of time this morning, uh, is on this idea that Jesus is preeminent. There is no other, no other God than this one God, who is Jesus. And so we're going to start in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Last week, we really he had his greetings, his introduction, um, his prayer, he prayed for the Colossian church. Uh, and then this is where we transition this week into verse 15. And he's talking about Jesus in verse 15, and he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And, uh, and I love this because the first thing he says is he is the image of an invisible God. Have you ever had this conversation with a child, maybe, when you say something about Jesus being in your heart, and they go, wait a second. Jesus is in my heart. You're like, well, yeah, it's a metaphor, right? But it's like, but it's not. He is, but, and they can't understand it because they're like, how did he get in my heart? Like that misses me up a little bit. You know, like, is that going to cause me problems? Am I going to have an issue with that later? Do I need to see a cardiologist about that? Uh, and so we, we struggle sometimes with, with abstract thoughts like this. Uh, and so even with this idea of God or Christ, it's, it's hard because we struggle with what we can't see. Now, it's a little different in this day and age because Paul wrote this around 60 AD, uh, somewhere around there. So there were still people alive who were eyewitnesses to Jesus Christ. And so it wasn't as abstract to his context and his uh, readers that were reading this letter as it is to us, because it's hard for us to imagine Christ, but it wasn't as difficult in that day and age. So when he said he is the image of an invisible God, he is an invisible God made visible, what he's really saying is God put on human flesh, came to earth, and walked around among us. And he is, he is the, the evidence of what we can't see. And so for us, again, we struggle with that idea a little bit, but what Paul is saying is it's pretty incredible that the God of the universe would show up on planet Earth, incarnate in Christ, to be the perfect sacrifice for us. That he is the visible image of what is invisible. And for us, we can take joy in that. We can take comfort in that today. He goes on to say, the firstborn of all creation. Um, how many of you are the oldest child in your family? The oldest? Okay. How many of you are the babies of the family? Are there any babies of the family? So what we see here is the favorites. We all know that. 
I'm the favorite in my family. <laughs> Why wouldn't I be? Hello, right? <laughs> There's this debate among siblings, among children. Oh, you're the favorite. Mom and dad love you more because, and they've got their evidence because you do this or you do that or whatever it might be. Um, and and that's, it's, that's just the way it is in families. It's not really that way in our family because I've told my girls who my favorite is. So uh, they don't struggle with that as much because I just made it clear. But no, I told my girls last night, we were talking, and, I said, and Abby said something about who's your favorite. And I said, it depends on the day. Sometimes you're my favorite, sometimes she's my favorite. So uh, I have a favorite, but it changes all the time. Uh, but what we see here is this idea, the firstborn of creation um, in scripture and in ancient times, there was a definite favorite in the family, and it was always the firstborn. It was never even close. There's a clear delineation, even in scripture, among uh, when you're looking at lineages between a firstborn and everyone else. There's the firstborn, and then there is the rest of the kids. Um, and really, if you want to be technical, there's the firstborn son, and then there are the other sons, and then there are the daughters, typically how it goes. Um, and and there was a reason for that. <clears throat> There's a fancy word to de describe it, and, and sociologists use this today. It's primogeniture. And what primogeniture basically means is um, that the oldest born son would get everything. They were the most important figure in the family, aside from the parents, because when the parents were gone, they would assume the role of the parent. So that might have been in royalty, like a king. Uh, even in scripture, we see the oldest was a priest. Um, they would assume roles and titles, and because they had a responsibility, they were typically given more. So they were given a bigger inheritance than the rest of the kids. Now, this is something we see in, in the Old Testament at work because um, we see the oldest child would get a double portion of the inheritance. Now, it doesn't mean that, um, that they would get twice as much as all the other children collectively, but if there were two children in the inheritance, they would split the inheritance up in three ways, and the oldest child would get two parts instead of one part. If there were five children, they'd split it up six ways, and the oldest would get two parts instead of one part. Um, and so this was true whether you were royalty or whether you were, uh, whether you were a slave. Uh, this is typically how it went. In fact, we see even in Scripture in Exodus chapter 11 where uh, Moses had gone to Pharaoh and said, Pharaoh, let my people go, right? And I'm not going to do it. And then they send plagues. And there's nine plagues that come Pharaoh's way in Egypt. And finally, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, okay, this last plague is going to be the worst. Uh, let, let God's people go. If you don't, the Lord is going to send death on the nation of Egypt. Uh, the firstborn is going to perish. He's talking about the firstborn son. So he says the firstborn son, your firstborn son, Pharaoh, will perish all the way down to the lowliest slave girl's firstborn son, including all of the, all of the livestock, all the animals, their firstborn son is going to die as well. And so he, he makes this clear that this is catastrophic for the nation of Egypt if this was to happen. And just to fast forward in that story, that's what happened. Um, and that's where the Passover occurred. So you, you know the, the, one of the, the holiest uh, festival in Jewish tradition is Passover, and this is where that story comes from. Uh, they literally painted blood, the blood of the lamb, over the doorpost to indicate to the death angel this house is covered. That's why we talk about being covered by the blood of the lamb. Uh, this, is, this is terminology that's connected. Um, and so in that moment, the firstborn son of every family, even animals, was taken. 
And so we see that the firstborn was an important figure, even to people who didn't have a big inheritance to leave, because what they did is they helped propagate the name of the family. They helped the name continue on. The firstborn also would help take care of the family. So after mom and dad were gone, the firstborn would make sure, they would fulfill the role of the parent, make sure the family was taken care of, especially those that were widows, ladies that were widowed or had never been married. They would take them in and support them and make sure they were taken care of. So now some of you are like, hey, wait a second, I've got an older brother. Maybe he should take care of me, right? That's between you and your older brother. I'm not going to get into that today. But this is what was happening. And so what we see is there was a responsibility by that firstborn son to do something, and they were given a blessing in order to do it. So there's a connection between our responsibility and blessing. See, in the world we live in today, many of us want to be blessed, but we don't want any responsibility. We go, God, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, but I don't want to do nothing with it, right? Not us. We don't do that. But other people I've heard do that. So what we need to see is that there's always, a, there's always a connection between responsibility and blessing. That if we're blessed, we have a responsibility to do something with that. And this is the understanding of the progenitor, that if you're the firstborn, there's a responsibility to that. And what we see in the Old Testament is this understanding when the, the, the Hebrew writers were writing the Old Testament they wrote it in such a way that they just assumed people that were reading it would understand that point of view, but we don't understand that point of view in today's day and age. Um, I've sat with families who the, the matriarch or patriarch passed away, and then the kids had to split up, and some of you have walked through this. Even the most loving families can get sideways over some of this kind of stuff. So can you imagine if you sat down and said, okay, you get twice as much as everybody else that probably would be difficult because we don't understand that in our context today. So when we look at Scripture, we have to understand that's the context of where they're at and what they were doing. So when we come back to this verse and it says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, um, for us, sometimes that, that, that phrase is lost. We don't understand the context. We don't understand the importance. But what we have to know is the firstborn in a family was supreme. They had... Um, they had almost as much authority as dad until dad passed away. And then when dad was gone, they had the authority of dad. So it's important to see that, that Christ is the firstborn of all creation. So what, what we're really saying here is the firstborn of creation is not only that he's, uh, that, that he's first in this world, so he came first. Have you ever met twins? And they say, oh, you're twins. That's so neat. That's great. Maybe there's twins here. And you go, well, hey, who was born first? I'm older by four minutes, right? Have you ever heard that conversation? You were only born four minutes before me. You're not that much older. Yeah, I know, but I was first, right? There's something about being first, even in that context. And in and, and this, man, in, in Hebrew times, twins were a bad sign. Twins caused problems with inheritances. And, and that's why in Scripture, one of the disciples was known as the twin because it was a bad omen in, in in that day and age. So even with twins, they argue over, well, you were, I was first, but only, right? Because first matters. And so what we see here is Jesus was first in time. He was the first one to show up, so that's important. But he's also above creation in power and authority. There is nothing that has more authority in this world than Christ. He is supreme. He is preeminent. And so when when Paul is telling the church, hey, I know you've got other gods, but I want you to know something. There is one God who is first and is supreme over all other gods. He is the one God, Jesus Christ. 
That's what he's communicating to them. That's what he's trying to help them understand. So this is an expression of Christ's relationship that he has with both man and the universe, that there is nothing we can see in this world, there's nothing we can imagine in this world that is preeminent over Christ, whether it's man or in creation. He is supreme over all as the firstborn. So this is important for us to get this and understand that. So he is the firstborn of creation. Verse 16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Um, I love this because it says, it kind of restates the same thing a couple times in this passage. It says, For by, by him all things were created, and then it circles back and says, All things were created through him. So what it's really trying to help us see is, um, and if I could get in this context a little bit, what he's saying is, hey, all of you that believe in other gods, guess what? Your God is a created being. Your God is created by our God. That Your God couldn't exist if it wasn't for my God. So think about this. Now, I know we don't have shrines in our homes, right? Hopefully. If you do, uh, Pastor Dick would love to talk to you after the service, okay? So we don't have shrines in our homes, and we don't have idols that we have, and we don't do that, but we do have idols in our heart, things that are supreme in our lives, things that we turn to other than Christ in times of crisis, and those are practical idols in our lives. And so what we do is we go to those idols in times of crisis or in pain or in hurt, and that's what we look for help from. And what Paul is saying to the church there and what he's saying to us today is, hey, you're serving a false god. Your god is just a created being. My god is the supreme god. Does that make sense? So when I turn to a substance or an activity or whatever it might be to nurture or to make me feel better, I'm turning to something that's created, that's finite in its ability to make me feel better when I could turn to the God of the universe who is infinite in his power and authority. He says, for by him all things were created. And then he specifies, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, he's saying there is nothing in this world that you can imagine, right? He goes down the list. And last week, if you were here, you heard me say this. The, the word all we used last week, we see it used over and over and over throughout the book of Colossians. It's the, it's the Greek word pas, P-A-S. And it means both the collective and the individual. So it basically means without limitation or without exception. Everything. So what Paul is saying is everything you can imagine is created by him. Then he comes back and says, all things were created through him. So through his power, it was created. And it says it was created for him. It was created for him. Why would he want that? Um, I, am, I like to fancy myself as being creative. And uh, so I like to build stuff or work on stuff. And really what I've realized is I like to fix broken stuff where I like to reclaim broken stuff that's been abandoned, like, oh, I could make something out of that, right? And, but really what I'm doing is I'm just cleaning stuff up. Even when we build something, I've built a few things, and it's kind of, um, oh, what's the technical word? It's kind of um, bad, I think. Um, 
<laughs> like stuff isn't at 90 degree angles sometimes. It's like, ooh, you know, like that'll be good in the basement. Let's leave that in the basement, right? Um, but I can recreate stuff a little bit. I can clean it up. I can make it look nicer than it was before, but I'm not creating things. And there's people in this room, there's people in our staff that can create stuff. They build stuff. They put stuff together, and it is beautiful. But, but I can't really do that. But, but even those of you that can create stuff, you're building, you're building an armoire, you're putting tables, whatever it is, you're building something, you're making something. You're really not creating it at the end of the day. None of us can create because... For me, if I build a table, um, I'm not making the wood, right? Somebody had to make the wood. Who made the wood? Well, the tree made the wood. Okay, well, who made the tree, right? Well, the seed. Well, where'd the seed come from? At the end of the day, God breathed everything into existence. So God did that through Christ. Christ was his vehicle to do that. So at the end of the day, Christ is creative. He created from nothing. So when I create, I create with stuff that's available because I am limited in my creation. But even with me, when I build something or when I put something together, when I redo something, I, I take joy in it most of the time. Then I go, man, that's mine. And there's been some times that I've done things that I've gone, man, this is, I love, this is mine. I'm not, I'm not giving this away. I'm not selling. This is mine. I'm keeping this. I want to keep this around because I like it, right? It's created for me. And this is what you have to understand. We were created for Christ. That he goes, this is mine. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing it. I'm keeping this one, right? This one belongs to me because Christ takes pleasure in us. We see that borne out in just a moment. But the truth is, I don't really create, but God creates. Christ creates. For by him, all things were created. All things were created through him and for him, for his pleasure. Verse 17 says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Do you sense a theme in the passages we're reading today, right? He's, he's trying to ram this idea home, that there is nothing that is superior to our God. He says, he is before all things, he is first in priority to all things, and in him, in him all things hold together. Um... Our social media team is going to post a, a link to a video um, in the next couple days on our social media page, um, and it, it's a video of a guy named Louis Giglio. Some of you know who he is. He pastors down in Atlanta, and Louis talks in this video about this protein cell that is resident in every human being that literally is the glue to our cells. It helps hold us together. It's called laminin, and we'll show you the video later. We didn't have time to show it today, um, but it's pretty incredible. It's a great video. Take a minute and watch that uh, when you get some time. But this is the thing. <clears throat> when Paul wrote this letter to the Colossian church, he had no clue about laminin. He had no clue about protein cells and how it holds us together. He didn't have any idea about that. But he did understand that Christ was the thing that holds us together, because he says it. He says... <clears throat> All things were created through him and for him. And it says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. <clears throat> now it's interesting because this word, this phrase hold together, um, the Greek for this word means to unite different parts into one whole. So Paul didn't understand the human body being held together by protein cells. But what Paul did understand is when we look at the body of Christ, when we look at 
the church, even on our church, it's totally disparate parts. People that are dramatically different in our uh, mindset or in our backgrounds or whatever it is, coming together, being united in one. This is what Paul understood, and this is what he has seen. And he says, you know what? When I look at the world, when I look at creation, when I look at the church, I see something that is totally different, many different parts being held together by Christ. And the truth is, we mentioned this last week, the world we live in is so divided. The the media would tell us, right? Just so you know, I'm going off notes. Some of you are really nervous because I mentioned the media. The media would tell us, if you're black, you have to hate white people. And if you're white, you better hate black people. And and if you're a, a woman, you better hate men. Same thing, men, you better be terrified of women. Democrats and Republicans, you shouldn't even be in a room together, right? Because we're so polarized. This is what the media would tell us. How can we bridge the gap? Is it even possible? No, it's not. Because when you watch TV, they say things like, Democrats are horrible. You should hate them all. And they, Republicans, they're the devil. And Right? Have you ever heard the phrase in, in the news media? They say, if it bleeds, it leads. Have you ever heard that? And what it means is the more dramatic, the more, um, the, the more divisive, the more all those things, that's what we want to run because that keep eyeballs on our paper, on, on our news show, whatever it is. So they are motivated to keep us divided as much as possible. But what Paul says is, hey, I know what unites. I know what brings together. I know what holds people together. And it is not an ideology of politics. It's not some uh, motivation in uh, you know, the world we live in, but he said at the end of the day, what brings us together is this, this understanding that it's Christ who is supreme in all things. And if we can understand that, if we can focus on that, then we can take people who are very, very, very different and bring them together in one, as one united whole. Does that make sense? John chapter one, verse one through five, it says this, in the beginning was the word, And the Word was God, and the Word was with God. It's talking about Christ as the Word. So he was in the beginning, and he was with God, and he was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So this is what you have to understand. He is the firstborn of creation, but he is not created. Okay? So Christ was not created. He is not a created being. This is what you have to understand. The enemy is out to get you, but the devil is a created being. He is finite and limited. Our God, who's three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are one. Our God is infinite in his power. So when the enemy comes against you, you've got to understand, uh, he is no match for our God because at the end of the day, what it says here is the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness doesn't have a win against light in the history of the world. It is oh for what, a million, right? But yet we think darkness will overcome us and at the end of the day we can trust deeply in our Lord because he is supreme over all things. He was in the beginning. He was with God. He is God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing is made. Colossians 1.18 says this, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Um, 
So I, I told you last week, Colossians and Ephesians were written at the same time, around the same time, uh, during Paul's, probably during Paul's imprisonment and while he was in Rome. So there are similar ideas and themes that kind of are woven through both because it's the same season of his life. Uh, and one of the things we see that I talk about a lot is in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is talking, um, he's talking to the church and he's talking about church relationship with God, but he's also talking about a marriage, a man and woman's relationship together. And he says in Ephesians chapter 5, women submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. And then he comes back a little bit later and says, and husbands, love your wives sacrificially as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then he walks through how this is not just talking about marriage, but it's also talking about our, the church's relationship with, with Jesus. And this kind of mirrors what we're talking about here because he says Jesus is the head of the church. So we are the body of Christ, but he is the head. Um, the head is what sets the direction, right? Uh, I never get in an argument with myself. My hand's like, no, I want to do, right? That would be weird. That would be creepy. Um, that sounds like a terrible horror movie, doesn't it? Like um, <laughs> sci-fi original movie and it, all these parts are arguing with each other. Uh, that's not what, it's, what, what we do. As a body, we are unified and we follow the direction of the head, where we look, where we think, what we do. Uh, and in the same way, we should be unified in Christ, that we follow his leadership, his lordship in our lives. Um, now, that passage in Ephesians is not saying that women turn off their brains and they don't have a say and they just are subservient to what their husbands say and that you stay quiet and do what I'm telling, right? That's not what it's saying. But what it's saying is in the same manner that the church submits to Christ, we, uh, women should submit to their husbands and trust him in the same way that we trust deeply in the Lord. Um, now, the other side of that is Jesus died sacrificially for his church, and sometimes women struggle to submit to their husbands because they are married to a husband that would not love their wife sacrificially, and so there's issues there. But what Paul is saying is there's a relationship in everything that we see here between submission and lordship and understanding, hey, at the end of the day, we submit to Christ because he is the head of our body, that we trust him deeply, we, we follow him, and we don't argue with him. But the truth is, don't we argue with him a lot? And Christ will give us instruction. We feel something in our heart. We should invite somebody to church. We should share a testimony. And we go, no, 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 that's not God, right? That's just me. I'm, 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 I, sh I can't do that. I'm, I'd be embarrassed. What would they say? What would I do? And at the end of the day, we struggle with lordship issues like that, following the head in that position. He's the firstborn from the dead. Now, that is... Uh, that's something, honestly, that I never really spent a lot of time thinking about, firstborn from the dead. That sounds like a horror movie, doesn't it? <laughs> Even right now, I'm thinking of movie trailers. Like, how could we, how could we sell that movie? Anyway, firstborn from the dead. Um, what does that mean? It sounds creepy, especially we're getting into, like, Halloween. Have you, I, I drove by a house the other day. This is a side note. I drove by a house the other day that I was... I was literally, this is not hyperbole, I was literally scared when I drove by their house. They had like a exorcist, like a life-size exorcist in their front yard, like Linda Blair. It looked like Linda Blair from that movie, and like the eyes and the pale skin. The whole yard was filled with that stuff, and I was like, you've got to be, and I, I drove a little faster when I drove by there. I almost halfway expected to look at my rearview mirror and see her running down the street after me. <laughs> 
So we're getting into the time of year where a lot of people celebrate Halloween and uh, scary things. So when we look at this passage, it can be a little bit unnerving. He's the firstborn from the dead. So what does it mean? Well, it's connected to his resurrection uh, because what we see is two things. Number one, we have this understanding that he was resurrected. He came back from the grave, that he was crucified on the cross. He was laid to rest in a borrowed tomb. And three days later, he walked out of that tomb alive. So what that tells us is um, he's setting a pattern for us. This is what we can expect. That's why we uh, as Christians believe that there will come a day when the dead in Christ will rise. That, that this life isn't all there is in this world, that there is something more to come. So Christ is a pattern for us, that someday uh, we will live again, even though we will die. The Bible tells us that we are, we are literally decaying day by day. Doesn't that bless you? Doesn't that encourage you? But if this life is all there is, we would have reason to be hopeless. But we have hope in that Christ ra- was raised from the dead. That he is setting a pattern for us. This is what we can expect in the future. So that's the first thing that, that should give us hope. But the second thing we see here is this understanding that Christ conquered death. That, that, think about this. The, the thing in this world that seems the most for sure is death, right? It's inevitable. It's going to happen. And what Christ said the day he walked out of the grave is death is not inevitable, right? Because I conquered death. I've got this. And so for us, we should be hopeful in that. Because yes, bad things are going to happen. Christ raised from the dead, but he had to be crucified to be put in the grave. Does that make sense to anybody? So, So it doesn't mean bad things won't happen. What it means is there is hope in Christ that he has conquered death. That the thing we feel like is most inevitable in this life is It bows down before our Lord. Death bows before Jesus Christ. So he's preeminent in all things, but the problem is I don't allow him to be preeminent in everything. That doesn't mean he's not sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. But there are times in my life when I have a problem or I have an issue, and I go, no, 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 God, I got this. I'll take care of this. I'll solve this. I'll fix this. And what I'm saying is, you're not preeminent. You're not supreme, but but I am. You can't take care of this problem, but I can. You can't fix this relationship, but I can. I'm going to finagle and I'm going to move around, right? We do this all the time. I'm going to manipulate, I'm going to lie, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to fix this, because I can do it, but God can't. At the end of the day, what, (laughs) what Paul is saying to the Colossian church is this, that in everything, everything, he is preeminent. Verse 19 and 20 say this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Um, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What a great passage this is. For in him, in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Um, really what it's saying is, God took immense pleasure in filling Christ up with his spirit. There are things that I enjoy, but there aren't very many things that bring me pleasure. Um, man, I love, I love spending time with 
my girls, my, my daughters and my wife. I love it. Really, there's not much more I'd rather do that brings me pleasure than that. Um, I do like the meadows, uh, but, <laughs> right? And when you think about your life, there's not a whole lot that brings you great pleasure. But what we see here is God takes great pleasure in filling up his son with his spirit. And he doesn't just fill up his son to do it. Because remember, if there's blessing, there's responsibility associated with that. So what does that mean? It's verse 20 says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. So God fills Christ with his spirit so that all things can be reconciled to God through Christ. Now, you go, that's great, Mel. Big deal. Let me read a passage to you from 2 Corinthians. Paul wrote this letter to this, he wrote several letters, but this was one of the letters he wrote to the Corinthian church. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So what Paul says is, hey, you know what? Um, he was filling Christ up so that Christ could be a vessel of reconciliation for us, for all creation to God. Then what happens? Well, we fast forward to 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, what Paul says is, hey, guess what? You are vessels of reconciliation. You've been reconciled by Christ. Now the expectation is you will be reconcilers as well. That God will reconcile the world to himself through you and through me. So now we have responsibility, but this is what you have to understand. We also have the benefit of being filled with his spirit. So if we really believe that, that God takes great pleasure in filling his son with his spirit, that God delights in that, then we have to understand that God takes great pleasure in filling us with his spirit. Um. Whatever your favorite drink is, maybe it's coffee, uh, maybe it's soda. By the way, I said a few weeks ago that I liked Dr. Pepper. I don't drink it anymore, so stop bringing me Dr. Pepper, okay? <laughs> I should have said that I liked $100 bills. That would have been better. <laughs> I don't drink Dr. Pepper anymore. I definitely don't drink Mr. Pibb, for those of you that have been thought they're funny and bring me Mr. Pibb, okay? When I used to drink Dr. Pepper, in the summertime, Oklahoma or Texas, man, it's hot, and you go to like a, you know, a gas station, you're filling up your drink, and I, I wouldn't leave room in there, right? You wouldn't leave it an inch short or two inches short, three inches, whatever. At the coffee shop, you might do that because you're going to put creamer in it. You're still filling the cup up, right? You fill it up to the max. I want it so full that it's actually to the top, and it's like over the top. You know what I'm talking about? It's like it's got a, a, a soda dome on it. And if you move it even one inch, it's all going to spill out. That's how full I want my cup of soda when I'm going to get it. I'm going to get my money's worth. Is anybody else cheap like me? Okay. And this is what God wants to do in your life. He wants to fill you up till if you move it at all, it's going to spill out. He, he wants it domed over the top. That's what he wants to do in you. Not that he wants to do it because he's like, well, I guess I got to fill him up. He takes pleasure in filling his children with his spirit. So why in the world would we not pursue that? Why in the world would we not accept that? Why would we not want that as well? 
It brings joy to our Heavenly Father when he gets to do that for us because there's a responsibility that comes with that blessing that says, now I'm going to be a reconciler. I'm going to let the world see how good our God really is. Verse 21 says this, and you, you who were once You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now recruited or reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You who were once dead are now alive. You who were once walking in darkness are now walking in light. Christ has done this for us. He's done it in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is our God. This is what Jesus has done with his infinite power, with his preeminence, with his supremacy over all creation and death. He's chosen to give life to us. It says in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So he says, hey, this is what we have to expect if you don't deviate from the path that God's got for you. You've got life in him. You've got light in him. You can trust him if you don't deviate from the path. And we spent a lot of time at the beginning of the message today talking about the firstborn. Um, it's interesting because firstborn wasn't, it wasn't just a designation of birth order. It was also a title. Um, so the, the title could be transferred. So if you were the firstborn, but you didn't want the responsibility of the firstborn, you could, you could, Give that title to a brother in the, in the line. You could give that to someone else. So even if you weren't literally the firstborn, you could take on title of the firstborn with all of the responsibility and all of the, the blessings that come along with it. Uh, we see this several times in Scripture. The most notable is with Jacob and Esau. Uh, Esau was the firstborn. They were twins. They were, um, Esau was the oldest by a few minutes, and he sold his birthright for literally for a bowl of soup to his brother. By the way, that's a bad idea, okay? It better be the best soup ever. I'm talking like, you know, um, broccoli and cheese, you know, like Panera bread and the bread bowl. That better be what he got for his birthright, okay? So he sells his birthright. So you could transfer it. You could give it away. You could sell it. You could do that because it wasn't necessarily about the birth order. It was about the title, and this is what I see. Um, for us, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, it's talking about God here. He says, For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. The, the word seated here, it's, it's a Greek word, it's sugatizo, and what it means is to sit together or place together. So when we hear that we are seated with Christ, you might go, big deal, right? What does that mean? We get to sit together at the table or whatever it is. Well, we'll think about this for a second. What Scripture tells us 
is that Christ is making intercession for us at the right hand of our Heavenly Father, which makes total sense because that's where he would be in authority. He would be in that position. So what we have to understand is when we're seated with Christ, the, the seat is what matters. And Christ is seated in the position of the firstborn. And so for us, we are now seated with Christ, that we are taking on taking on the title of firstborn because we are seated with him. Imagine this. There's this seat that the firstborn gets to sit in, and we go up to it and go, hey, hey, Jesus, can you scooch, scooch, over, scooch, scooch over just to, and we just kind of wedge ourselves down with Christ. Does that make sense? It's a little squishy, but it's okay. We don't mind because Christ has invited us into that place. He's invited us into the seat of the firstborn. So this is what you have to know today. I used to imagine that I was a Christian, and it was like, well, yes, you know, Christ, and then us, right? You got the firstborn, and then you got all the other kids. We're just lucky to be in the family, so don't make any waves, right? But what God does in his infinite goodness in us, or for us, he invites us to sit in the seat of Christ. He puts us, he positions us, he seats us with Christ. And says, no, 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 when I see you, I see my firstborn. With all of the blessing and all the responsibility that comes with that title. So my question for you today is, I guess I've got a couple of questions. Number one is, where are you seated? If you're not a follower of Christ, maybe you've never surrendered your life to Christ. Why not? So we serve a God who loves you, wants to fill you with his spirit. That is his desire. His son laid down his life for you. So if you're not a follower of Christ, why not? We want to give you an opportunity today. Maybe you're here today and you say, Mel, you know what? I, I thought I was walking with the Lord at one point. I was going to church and I was praying. And, but man, just like Paul talked about, I kind of deviated from the path. I deviated from that hope. We want to welcome you back today. Maybe you're here and you go, well, I'm a Christian, I'm going to heaven. And then I would ask you, what are you doing with the title firstborn? Because we all want the blessing, but we all don't want the responsibility. So what are you doing with that? What are you doing to be a reconciler of all creation? Because that's what he's challenged us. That's what he's, he's given us an opportunity to do and be. And if you're not doing that, why not? The, the life and light of Christ is resident in you as a child of God. Take it wherever you go. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you today, and we're grateful that you love us and you're for us, and we can trust you. Thank you that Jesus willingly gave his life. No one took his life. He willingly gave it to pay the price for our sins. And today we can experience life and light in you because of Christ's sacrifice. God, I pray for those that are here today that um, maybe they never really understood their seat before. They never understood that they have authority, they have power through you. I pray that today would be a turning point for them. I pray for those that are here that don't know you, that aren't in a relationship with you. Lord, let today be the day that changes everything. Let today be the day it's a watershed for them. So I pray that you would minister in us today. Lord, draw those that are far from you. Help them see your kindness and your love. 
Now, with nobody looking around, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I just want to ask if you're here today and you're not serving God, you're not in a relationship with Christ, maybe at one time you were, but you kind of walked away from that. I just want to ask, would you be willing to come home today? Would you be bold enough to say, yeah, that's me. I want to get things right with God. Because I'm not going to embarrass you or bring you forward. I'm just going to pray with you right where you're at. So if that's you and you say, Mel, pray for me. I want to surrender my life to Christ. I want to experience what it's like to be the firstborn, to be accepted, to be loved like that. I'm not going to make you come forward. I just want to pray with you. If that's you, would you be bold enough to slip your hand up real high where I can see it? You can put it right back down. Thanks. Over here on my left, I see you. Who else would say, pray for me, Mel? Yeah, I see you in the back on my left. Thank you, ma'am. I see you in the center section. Thanks. Up in the balcony, I see you on my left. Praise God. Yeah, I see you up there. Thanks, sir. Thank you, Jesus. Just a few more seconds. Anybody else? I'd like every person in this place, whether you raise your hand or not, just to pray this prayer with me out loud. Say, dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. And thank you for sacrificing your life to pay for my sin. From this day forward, my life belongs to you. Use it for your glory. Thank you for loving me. From this day on, my life is yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's give God a round of applause, can we? Now listen, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, whether you raised your hand or not, I just want you to know that you are a new creation today. The old is gone, the new has come, and uh, we believe God is going to totally transform you. So we want to help you take the next step in your faith journey. And if you would, take just a moment. You can fill the card out that's in the seat back in front of you. On one side it says, need prayer. On the other side it says, salvation. And let us know about your decision. You can drop that in one of our offering boxes as you leave, and we're going to help you take the next step in your faith journey. If you're watching online you'd like to respond, just simply text the word SALVATION to the number 555-888. And when you do that, we're going to respond back to you and help you take the next step in your faith journey. Again, so thank you for worshiping with us today. This is what's going to happen right now. Our worship team's going to lead us in one more song. While we're worshiping together, our prayer team's going to make their way forward to either side of the stage. And if you need prayer for any reason at all today, before we leave, find one of our prayer team members. Let them pray with you. And then in just a moment, Pastor Ricky, our youth pastor, is going to come, and he's going to close us out and dismiss us. So stand your feet all over the room. Let's worship together one more time before we go, guys. I love you more than you know, and I'm so honored that I get to be your pastor. God bless you guys.